So as I say, this is our last classic service for the year. I can't believe it's the 1st of December. Time has really gone fast. Um, And so this does mean that this is going to be the last time that we look at Isaiah uh, for the rest of this year. We'll probably look at some of the chapters early next year as well. But we've reached Isaiah 53, or 52 and 53. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to that chapter When I saw whereabouts we'd reached in the book, I thought to myself, is this really the passage of Scripture I should be speaking on this morning? It doesn't uh, seem particularly Christmassy or appropriate to the Christmas season. Uh, I thought maybe I should just leave it till next year as we head uh, towards Easter. But the more I studied this passage, the more I realized actually this is perfect for us as we come to the Christmas season. I heard about a little girl who uh, went to see a nativity scene in the town center with her uh, mom and dad. Uh, Each year they would go and they'd look at the nativity scene and come home. And this year as they were on their way back, the girl's mom asked her, did you enjoy that? And the little girl replied, yes, but there's one thing I don't understand. When is Jesus going to grow up? He's the same size as he was last year. And that little girl perceptively noticed something that many people never get. And that is that Jesus isn't simply a baby in a manger. He grew up. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning reminds us of the Jesus who grew up, which is important to us as we come towards Christmas. Let's have a look. Isaiah 52 and from verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand." Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by people, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities." The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. In 1984, the Russian-Afghanistan war was at its height. The Russians were bombing Afghanistan, and many of the people were fleeing to refugee camps uh, in the surrounding nations. One of the refugee camps, one of the largest, was the Nasir Bag refugee camp in Pakistan. And around that time, the photojournalist Steve McCurry went to the refugee camp, and he took some photographs to try and capture some of the tragedy that was taking place in Afghanistan. And one of the photographs that he took was this one. I wonder how many of you recognize it. It's one of the world's most famous images. It was on the front cover of National Geographic in 1985. And this was an unknown Afghan child whose parents had been killed in the Russian bombing and who was now left in the refugee camp. Steve McCurry had no idea who she was. He simply entitled the photograph Afghan Girl, and that was the end of it. But as you know, the picture had a huge impact on the world. It perfectly captured the tragedy that was taking place in Afghanistan. It drew the attention of the world to a relatively unknown region of the world. In fact, this picture and this little girl became a symbol of the conflict in Afghanistan. Well, in 2001, after the war, Steve McCurry decided to return to Pakistan to try and locate this unknown girl who'd captured the hearts of the world. And the only thing he had to identify her with was his photograph. Uh, The girl had been 13 years old at the time. Now she would be 30. How was he going to find her? Steve and his team went back to Pakistan. They went to the refugee camp. Uh, They tried to locate her. And as you can imagine, when a whole lot of Americans arrive in big cars with a photograph looking for a girl, suddenly everybody wants to help. Uh, There were a number of women who claimed, yes, I am that girl. Uh, There were a number of men who said they were married to her, and for a certain amount, Steve McCurry and his team could come and find her. But after a lot of false starts, Steve McCurry managed to find her. She'd married, she'd returned to Afghanistan, and her name was Shabat Gula. Uh, here she is, uh, 17 years later. Most, most interesting of, the, of, of all was she'd never seen a photograph of her as a child. She had no idea about the sensation that she'd made in the rest of the world. And you can read her story on the National Geographic website. It's quite interesting. As soon as Shabat Gula walked into the room, Steve McCurry recognized her. Her face fit the picture perfectly. Her eyes, her nose, her smile. 
There had been many who'd claimed to be her, but only one who fitted the picture perfectly. And a very similar thing happens when we come to Isaiah 53, that here we have a picture of the Lord's suffering servant. And the question we wanted to ask is, who is this? That was the question that the Ethiopian minister of finance asked Philip, remember in the book of Acts. We read how this Ethiopian official is bumping his way back home from Jerusalem in his chariot, and he's reading aloud from the book of Isaiah, because you have to read Hebrew out loud. You can't read it in your head. And as he drives past Philip, Philip hears this passage, and he shouts out to the man, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, no, I don't. And he invites Philip up into the chariot, and the first thing he asks Philip is this, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? himself or someone else? That's the question that we have. Who is this passage about? Who fits this picture? Well, there have been many suggestions as to who this servant of the Lord is. Uh, Maybe it's Isaiah or one of the prophets or one of the kings. Uh, All of those folk are referred to in the Old Testament as being God's servants. The nation of Israel herself is described as God's servant. Remember last week, we read in chapter 44 where God said, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. The Jewish people have always seen themselves in this chapter because they certainly have been a people who have suffered, and we, we shouldn't deny that. But it's interesting that the pronouns are singular. It's he and him, not they and them. And also there's a very important distinction in verse 8. Have a look at it again. Isaiah says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. There's a distinction then between the Lord's servant and the Lord's people, the Israelites. The servant can't be the people of Israel because he dies for the people of Israel. I think it's true to say that it's only when we read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus that suddenly everything comes into sharp focus and we say, here he is. This is the man that the prophet is talking about. I mentioned Philip and the Ethiopian official a moment ago, and in the book of Acts we read that Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Ultimately, it's only Jesus who fits this picture. Last week, we had a look at the topic of idols, and we said that one of the ways that we get rid of idols out of our lives is by replacing them with a true picture of who the Lord Jesus is, that it's only when we fully grasp his beauty, his intelligence, his gentleness, his loveliness, his mighty power, his insight, his relevance, then we automatically turn to him instead of turning to worthless idols. We need a correct picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. And this morning, I simply want us to look at this picture of Jesus that Isaiah gives to us in a bit more detail. And then then at the end, I want to make just a few practical applications to our lives. Just to say also that, that this picture of Jesus is a prophecy that was written at least 500 years before Jesus was born. As John Piper points out in one of his sermons, when you read the story of your salvation in detail, 500 years before it happened, you have not only revelation, but validation. 
we can be strengthened in our confidence that this is no myth, but the historical work of God who told his story long before it happened. So let's have a look at the picture. Firstly, in these verses, we have the servant introduced to us in verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. In other words, this servant will have the most inauspicious beginnings. He will not be found in the places we usually associate with greatness. He won't be found in a palace or in a university or in Hollywood or Wall Street or Madison Avenue. We will have to look elsewhere. When the wise men came seeking a new king, they automatically went to Jerusalem, to the palace, expecting the new king would be found there. Uh, But he wasn't. He was born in our equivalent of Liudorenstadt, Bethlehem, (laughs) in the back stable of a village inn, with apologies to anyone who's from Liudorenstadt this morning. And he grew up in Nazareth, a a town that's so obscure and unimportant, it isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. Remember when Jesus is calling his first disciples, he calls Philip, and Philip in turn calls Nathanael and says to him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replies, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Not only are his origins inauspicious, but he himself is disregarded. If you look from verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In 1514, someone forged a document. They made it look like it had been written by Publius Lentulus, who was the Roman governor who succeeded Pontius Pilate. This document was supposed to contain an accurate description of Jesus. This is what the writer said. He is a tall man, well-shaped, and of an amiable and reverend aspect. His hair of a color that can hardly be matched falling into graceful curls, parted on the crown of the head, running as a stream to the front after fashion of the Nazarites. His forehead high, large and imposing. His cheeks without spot or wrinkle, beautiful with a lovely red. His nose and mouth formed with exquisite symmetry. His beard and of a color suitable to his hair, reaching below his chin and parted in the middle like a fork. His eyes bright blue, clear, and serene. Now, I recognize that picture. That is the picture that I grew up with in Sunday school, probably the kind that you grew up with too. But it's not the real Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, he didn't really stand out from other people. Isaiah says he was despised. Uh, In English, that's got an emotive content as well, sort of belittling and contempt. The Hebrew doesn't have that. It, It simply means to consider something or someone worthless and beneath our attention, unworthy of our attention. 
that in his gospel, Matthew tells us how Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and preaches in the synagogue. And people said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. You'll notice that throughout this passage, Isaiah uses the words we and our. In other words, this isn't simply a story of a group of people living far away in a different time and place. This is a story about you and me, that often our eyes flicker across Jesus in a crowd and we don't see him, let alone recognize him. Our eyes are trained to be caught and satisfied by superficial splendor. And so we apply our usual tests. Is he good-looking? Beauty. Does he have an impressive personality? Majesty. What overall impression does he make? Appearance. He seems to fail on all counts. Who he is and the things that he offers don't seem worth our consideration. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how the famous violinist Joshua Bell once stood outside a metro station in Washington and played various pieces by Bach for 45 minutes while being largely ignored by the crowds rushing by. He made $35, and only six people stopped for longer than a few seconds to listen. Because he wasn't in his tuxedo and bow tie, people failed to recognize who he was and the value of what he was offering them. Hundreds of dollars worth of performance for free. So the servant is is introduced, he's disregarded, but thirdly, he's afflicted. We read about his suffering and death. Chapter 52, verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And in chapter 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Can you see Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, the most powerful man in Israel, all the chief priests and the teachers of the law accusing him? And Matthew tells us, but Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Isaiah speaks about oppression and injustice, and we know that Jesus' trial and execution were a complete miscarriage of justice. Three times Pilate stands before the crowd and says, I find no basis for a case against this man. And yet the prisoner was beaten and whipped and executed anyway. Because this man is so afflicted, some could come to the conclusion that he must have done something really terrible to be punished by God in this way. Verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted which leads us fourthly to the servant substituted. This man suffered, but clearly it isn't for anything that he has done. Have a look again at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
This man isn't suffering for anything that he has done. Rather, he's suffering for someone else. And here we come to the heart of the passage, verses 4 to 6. Let's have a look at the, the pronouns in these verses, the contrast between he, his, and we, our, and us. It's quite striking. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Servant becomes my substitute. Because notice again, this isn't a passage about people living a long way away, a long time ago. It's about you and it's about me. And perhaps this isn't a passage that we particularly like because it's not very complimentary towards us. And yet if we're honest, we know it to be true that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Someone has described us as being a little bit like those bowling balls, not the ones you use in ten-pin bowling, but the ones that you use in the game of bowls. When you roll the ball towards the green, it it goes straight for a while, and then after a while, it curves towards one side. It has a natural bent. And if we're honest, you and I would have to say that we too have a natural bent away from God and towards evil. We're alarmed and we're ashamed at the level of crime and violence in our country. We stand outside uh, schools and we protest. And yet, yet if we're honest, we see the seeds of such violence in our own anger on the road, our indifference to the suffering of others, our, our desire to look out for ourselves and to cheat and to take shortcuts where we can. What's the problem with South Africa? I am. I'm a sinner. I stand guilty before God, and quite frankly, I deserve to die for my sin. I remember one man saying that there isn't a person alive who, if all their actions and thoughts were scrutinized for a day and made public, would not deserve to be hanged twice before tea time. I'd hate for me to have my life put up on a screen for everyone to see. I'd be so ashamed. I deserve to die for my sin. But if I were to die for my sin, that would be the end of me. I can't save myself. Someone needs to rescue me. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. There's that very important little word that is used a couple of times in these verses. It's that word for. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I'm sure you remember uh, as a young person, your mom and dad saying to you, won't you do the dishes for me? Or won't you make me a cup of coffee for me? Or won't you do whatever it is for me? I love having children now and being able to do that uh, for them. Uh, What am I saying to Karen when I say, please make a cup of coffee for me? I'm saying, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to have to do it for myself. (laughs) And that's the same here. Instead of me dying for my sin, Jesus does it for me. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just to say that some people are uncomfortable with this idea of God punishing his son in our place. 
One writer has even described this as cosmic child abuse. But there's an important phrase that's used in this passage about the servant. In chapter, 30, in chapter 52, verse 13, Isaiah says, See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And that phrase, high and lifted up, is, is used four times in the book of Isaiah, nowhere else in the Old Testament, and it's used only of God. In other words, I think that Isaiah is hinting here at something that the New Testament will make more explicit, that in giving his son, God gave himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There isn't any disunity between father and son. The father doesn't have to force his son against his will to take our punishment. The son, through his sacrifice, doesn't have to wrench forgiveness out of the hands of an unwilling father. No, father and son work together to work out salvation for us. The servant substituted for you, for me. And then finally in this passage, we see the servant glorified. Verses 10 to 12. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. It's the great reversal, isn't it? The God who comes down uh, is raised up. The Apostle Paul probably bases his beautiful hymn in Philippians 2 on this very passage. He speaks about Jesus who, being God, comes down, down, humbling himself, becoming a man, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, taking the nature of a servant. And Paul says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's just a little bit of a look into this picture of Jesus. There's so much more that we could look at. But I don't just want us to know something this morning. I want us to do something as well. What, what does the picture mean? What, what are some of the practical implications and applications to our lives? And again, there are so many, but let me just pick three. The first application is to our salvation. Having looked at all that Jesus has done for us through his suffering and his death, we have to ask, in the words of the writer to the Hebrews, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation. If you've never received for yourself personally what Jesus did on the cross for you, what's stopping you from doing that even this morning? Maybe you've attended church for years and never have accepted forgiveness and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you're in that position, you could do that this morning by praying a very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, sorry for the wrong things I've done against you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Please forgive me and come and take control of my life. I want to assure you it would be the best Christmas for you ever if you were to pray a prayer like that this morning.
second application of this picture is to our suffering. As we've heard, we, we live in a world of terrible, unjust suffering and pain where one can hardly even pick up a newspaper or read about the horrific things that take place in our world. And sometimes a question comes to mind. Where is God? It's a legitimate question. I always remember as a teenager reading a book by Elie Wiesel, simply entitled Night. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish man who described his experiences in Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps during World War II. It's a harrowing book. Uh, at one point in the book, he describes how the SS guards hanged three men one day uh, on suspicion of sabotage. And one of those hanged was a young Dutch boy. He was loved by the whole camp. Wiesel said he had a refined and beautiful face, the face of a sad angel. Uh, and let me read to you what happened. It's a bit grim, but it's part of our world. It says, one day when we came back from work, we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place, three black crows, roll call, SS all around us, machine guns trained, the traditional ceremony, three victims in chains, and one of them, the little servant, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more disturbed than usual. To hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over, total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes, and we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, where is he? Here he is. He's hanging here on this gallows. Now, Wiesel didn't say that as a statement of faith. In fact, quite the opposite. He says that that was the moment his faith in God died, but he spoke truer than he realized because that is precisely where God was and is. Where is God in our pain, in our grief, in our trauma, in our trouble? He is Emmanuel, God with us. In his book on the cross, John Stott writes this, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I've had to turn away, 
And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. Now, again, this doesn't sound particularly Christmassy, does it? At present, all of the shops and the television adverts are telling us that this is the most magical time of the year. And then we're encouraged to be upbeat, sunny, successful, comfortable, leisurely, sporty, relaxed, smiley, fun, people. Uh, but, but some of us know that this is a difficult time of the year. And for all of us, difficulties are coming. If you're not in them yet, they're on their way. <laughs> in our lives, there will be health difficulties and marriage difficulties and family difficulties and job difficulties and financial difficulties And there will be one day our final difficulty, the difficulty of our own death. And at those points, we won't want an upbeat, sunny, successful, comfortable, leisurely, sporty, relaxed, smiley, fun God. We'll want and need a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. In the book of Hebrews, we read that in Jesus, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And then finally, the picture of Jesus that we have in these verses has application to self-sacrificial service. Now, I preached a whole sermon on this at our combined service. I won't repeat it this morning. If you missed it, have a look on the website. But listen to how the Apostle Peter applies Isaiah 53 to our lives as Christians. He writes this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter simply says that that Jesus' attitude to unjust suffering should characterize my life when I'm cut off in traffic when I'm verbally attacked, when I'm sued, when I'm misunderstood by my family because of my faith, when I'm falsely accused, when I'm tempted to gossip or slander, when I'm tempted to take the easy way out rather than obey God's word, when I'm tempted to take up a relationship I know God would be disapprove of, or when I'm tempted to break off a relationship that God would have me stay in. In each of those situations... It involves a certain degree of suffering. And in those situations of suffering, I see an opportunity to follow Jesus, to share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, 
and so to experience the resurrection of the dead, that it's in dying to myself that I experience life in all its fullness. Our picture of Jesus has implications for self-sacrificial service. In fact, it's only when we see Jesus and we have him as our dearest treasure that we can serve anyone at all because we're not looking for meaning and significance from others. We get that from our relationship with Jesus and that frees us in turn to serve others. Recently, I had the wonderful opportunity of uh, visiting an art gallery with my youngest daughter, Sarah. She enjoys art. She studies it at school. I enjoy art. I studied it at school, and so we left the two Philistines at home, and the two of us went <laughs> to uh, the art gallery. And uh, it, was, it was great to be able to see a, a few paintings that were familiar to us. And as we went through the gallery, Sarah was madly taking photos on her cell phone. I said, don't worry with the photos. We can buy a book uh, at the gallery shop right at the end, and we can then include all of the paintings that you like. Rather look at the paintings for yourself. Well, when we got to the end of the gallery, we went to the bookshop, and we bought a guide to the gallery. But when we looked at it later, we saw that the pictures in the book were very poor copies of the originals. The colors were not as bright or as deep or as rich as the original. In fact, when we looked at the photos that Sarah had taken herself, they were much closer to the original. And I was very glad that she hadn't listened to her dad at all and had taken all of her photographs, so at least we had those. How did we know that the pictures in the book weren't as good as the originals? Because we'd seen the originals firsthand for ourselves. We'd enjoyed the depth and the richness and the beauty of the original. My hope this morning is that in looking at Isaiah's picture of Jesus, it will have made the original Jesus more real and vibrant and rich to us, and that seeing him in all his glory will lead us to salvation. It will lead us to patience and hope in our suffering, and it will lead us to a fresh commitment to follow Jesus in self-sacrificial service of him and of others. Let's pray together.